have a problem every year around MLK Day because the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for some reason has been treated as America's civil rights mascot. On this day, you'll have folks who would have never in their life marched with, agreed with, voted with anything he believed in. One of the biggest bigots in the United States Congress, he had the audacity to send out a Dr. King quote. The march has begun every day. We rise like the sun. We fight till the battle is won. Can you hear the footsteps? Mr. and host of On Another Level, we are live in the beautiful studios of BNN Media Television, Channel 23 on some channels. Um, but here's the deal. I was just talking to my guest, who's amazing. I literally could ask him two questions and sit here for the whole hour and just listen to him. I'm talking about Brother Joe McCall, Reedrian Communications Group, School, African-American History classes, um, Faneuil Hall, walking tours, now you've got a van and everything. We're going to talk about all of that, and we're going to talk about black history and how it's American history and the real history here on Another Level. Stay with us. Steve, you remember last year those threats were targeted at historically black colleges and universities. This year we're seeing those threats inside K through 12 classrooms. Jordan High, the target of threats today because of the African American Studies course. All of it happening as we celebrate Black History Month. If you look around, you can explore the past and present. Celebrate the contributions of black Americans and honor historical figures who paved the way. Black history is American history. But sharing that history in the classroom comes with challenges. Historically, the, the lives and the experiences, the contributions, um, the oppression of black people has been excluded from curriculum. And we've had a Eurocentric curriculum. And so that erasure causes harm. Dr. Rhonda Taylor Bullock is a former high school English teacher in Durham. She's the executive director of We Are, working to extend anti-racist education. The nonprofit provides anti-racism training for children, families, and educators. Her work comes as school districts deal with a slew of scrutiny on how students are taught race, racism, and America's dark past. A lot of people are afraid to teach it because they're seeing, you know, their colleagues being fired or losing their jobs um, over teaching what they thought what they were supposed to teach. And so, you know, the, those fears are real. Targets and threats. Today, those threats were sent to Jordan High School in Durham. It's one of the 60 schools selected for the pilot Advanced Placement African American Studies course. We cannot let fear dictate how we move. It's too much at stake. Um, our children's livelihoods and safety are at stake. AP is not going to be undaunted by some political maneuvering in one administration in one state. Dr. Lee Baker is a professor of African and African American Studies at Duke University. He also served as a consultant for the college board as they prepare the AP African American Studies course curriculum. I am not surprised that education can be divisive and partisan, if that's what you're but I'm, I'm delighted that the college board has seen an opportunity and understands the value of African American studies. 
So I pushed the college board for that entire list, the 60 schools that are offering this AP African American Studies course. The board told me out of abundance of caution, they will not release that list. So that just shows you the controversy surrounding the teachings of this African American Studies course. I also reached out to Johnston County Schools, Wake County Schools, and Cumberland County Schools to find out the type of African American Studies courses or curriculum that will be offered or is offered to the students at those school districts. None of the districts responded to my request for information. In Durham tonight, I'm getting... So that was Durham, North Carolina. That was not Boston. That was also a year, well, it was about seven months ago. But the controversy continues. Welcome back to On Another Level. What we desire to do on this program, it's not just one topic, it's many topics. Um, and here at BNN Media, we cover the topics that you may not see on major media because that's our responsibility as community media. This is an election season. In Boston, it seems like there's always an election going on. Right now, there's been a low turnout because of city councilors. So you have at-large city councilors that are for the whole city, and you have district city councilors for where you live. District city councilors and at-large city councilors are responsible for your services, constituent services. You're a constituent if you're a citizen here, whether you vote or not. So if you're angry about whether or not your trash gets picked up or coyotes on American Legion Highway or bicycle lanes or, you know, an eight-story building next to your house, that's who you talk to. There are levels of government in the government that actually have something to do with your quality of life. So teachers teach everybody. We give the foundational information, whether you turn into a politician, an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer, a crackhead. Everybody goes to school. That's what public school is about. But there's controversies now in Boston. Boston has the only fully appointed school committee and over 300 school committees in Massachusetts. And Boston is the capital city. Last election, there were 99,000 people that voted to have the school committee return to being elected. Hasn't happened. This past week, there was a hearing. Thank you, City Councilor, at large City Councilor Julia Mejia, who had a hearing about the hiring, firing, and promotion policies at Boston Public Schools and in the Boston Police Department. It was at three o'clock in the afternoon for you guys who were in school and who were at work. I was there, and, but you, that's no excuse. You take time for what is important. What is important, whether you are a parent of a student, a child in the Boston Public Schools or not, is education. Education. And so that's what we're talking about tonight. African-American history, African-American history, African-American teachers, African-American and black administrators, the whole structure, the whole curriculum. 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. That was supposedly going to enlighten everyone by allowing black children and white children to go to school together. And then the backlash was, you know, black folks getting murdered, literally getting murdered. All of the black teachers, especially down south, getting pushed out of schools because we were deemed to be not educated enough and not professional enough to teach anyone, including black students. So all of the black, the only black only schools, except for the HBCUs, shut down. And right now, um, Howard has, has more black professionals in that school, more black students in that school than, any, than all of the Ivy League schools combined. 
graduating more lawyers, not just uh, Chadwick Boseman and an actor who's now passed on, God bless him, but lawyers, doctors, teachers, scientists, inventors. If you do not know your history, then how do you know how great you are? I'm talking to my people. I'm black. I'm African-American, unapologetically. And so it's a sad frog that does not croak in his own pond. I'm not discriminating against anybody else. It was an accident of birth that I was born black and African-American, but I'm very proud of my people. And you need to know how bad my people are, B-A-D, on a good way, not a bad way. One of the people that is so, so intense about his history, about our history, and, and the connection back to Africa, because let's face it, whether you black, white, slip sliding, flying and gliding, we all started in Africa. Get over it. We did. The oldest mother, the oldest bones, the oldest archive of a woman is a black woman, an African woman. So when you don't know what your history is, you're bound to repeat it, and not usually the best parts. You cannot go into Germany and see any statues to Nazis praising them, but you can sure enough go around in up south in Mississippi and down south in Mississippi and see Confederate soldiers. So there's still trials going on about the insurrection, and it was in January 6th, people just figuring they were gonna, you know, storm the Capitol and and a lot of people said, if that had been black people doing it, the outcome would have been different. This man has the audacity, I don't want to even mention his name, but Orange Man has an audacity to think he could still run for president. What he did was treasonous. If he did that in any other country, we wouldn't even be talking about him. He would not be here. But we are going to talk about tonight the greatness of people who are melanated people. You don't know what melanin means, look it up. You can Google everything else, Google that. My, my good, good brother my fantastic, um, he's an artist too, who is always up on like chat GPT and African ancestry. He has done workshops that I've attended, many workshops, um, looking at your roots, finding out where you are. In Freedom House, they're accessible. They're usually free or nominal fee. He's been doing walking tours in Faneuil Hall. Now he has a van. Joel McCall, welcome. I, I did this big you know, right, you've been here before, but you haven't been here for a while. Like, there's been the pandemic. And even though I've been doing the shows, the studio was kind of shut down for a minute. We were doing stuff on Zoom. And I like having you here, like, in person, that energy in person. And I saw you at the um, Roxbury Sunflower Project. And that was in the open. You and I have talked about Martha's Vineyard and the African-American um, Historical Society and putting up markers. You and I also talked about a project that involves putting up markers in Roxbury. So welcome, tell me about the stuff that you've been doing. Sure, um, uh, I give thanks sister, I appreciate you taking <laughs> the time to, to, to have me on your show. Um, yeah, so I've been doing a lot of different projects. Um, the genealogy continues, those programs, um, you know, helping our folks think better of ourselves through understanding our actual family line. Um, while you were talking, five different things went through my head um, with, you know, a lot of our lines, whether they go to the islands or they go down to, um, you know, the southern United States. Or to Europe. Oh, yeah, many different places. These, these um, a lot of them are universal. And one of the things is, is the, the program that you played, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, where all these different things are going on right now 
pushing down learning about our history as um, a part of the wider history. They didn't even have education until after the Civil War. When people, they called them carpetbaggers, white northerners were trying to establish links into the cotton industry in the South mm. to get the, cotton, the crop to keep going right after the war. They were also bringing down a few white um, schoolmasters and teachers from New England and New York and Pennsylvania and so forth. And they will come in to educate folks in the plantations. And that's really the first massive public educational push that even white Southerners got. Wow. So right at the beginning, if you look at the curriculums from the beginning, there's a long genealogy of what's going on right now with the Orange Menace and all of that. It's just the latest phase of something. Very early on, they had acts in North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida that said, um, we will teach this way, this must be in the school books, talking about George Washington in a high oh, uh, light. And so that was uh, 100 years before Brown versus Board of Education, and a young man who came up here for the summer to stay with his older sister, uh, Ella Collins Little, Malcolm X, would learn through his upbringing in the nation, he would raise it repeatedly that when Brown versus the Board of Education, the Supreme Court ruling came down in 54, it took a lot of the states a long time to actually enact that. And all the while that that was happening, that 10, 15 years before they even desegregated, you know, mm -hmm. we see all the, the amazing battles that our families, our parents put six-year-old children to walk uh, Ruby, Ruby bridges and whatnot, to walk through the doorsteps with all these people. Um, National Guard. Yeah, all these people uh, uh, hurling insults. And then that was repeated 20 years later, of course, here. But um, that 10, 15 years, they took the time to set up charters and private schools and actually close down entire public school systems um, and not desegregate. So the, the, you, you made me think of something very important is that the rate at which we come to victory is the rate with which the young people today skip over this, um, oh, this is new. Oh. You know what I'm saying? Like, for them to understand this is all connected. It's genia, it's a, it's a, it's a thread that is one connected thing. And it's not something that you're seeing new for the first time. It's something that's a part of um, something that has been going on and for continue. a long time. Yeah. So a bit you, you, to get back to your question, my my projects now are focusing a lot on um, exposing that thread. Mm. And so, uh, for example, I just got chartered this summer to uh, do uh, charter vans. So I've been 15, 17 years. I've been doing these walking tours, um, and we go up to. The, we go down to the Long Wharf, we actually talk about, um, you know, Zipporah Atkins was a black home-owning woman in 1674. 1674. So we start at that site outside of Haymarket, um, right downtown near Faneuil Hall. Then we go to Long Wharf, we walk over to Copps Hill Cemetery where Prince Hall is buried. We get all the way up until the 1700s and uh, the American Revolution. At that time, up in that area, that was called New Guinea by people on the outside, where free blacks were congregated in the Snow Hill uh, Street right there. That was our first black community formation. Where in Beacon we, Hill? Uh, no, that was in the North End. Oh, the North and, End. Yeah, okay. by Copps Hill Cemetery. And so that community 
was pushed kind of to the back side of the north end where it was the musty kind of smelly mill area where the, the factory and, and that kind of stuff was going on and was establishing. But as shipping and Boston became a part of the Atlantic and grew, all the immigrants started to come into that section and they started to push us to the dark side, the, the um, shady side of, of the, north end, uh, the uh, west end, which is the northern slope of Beacon Hill. And so there's actually a document that says a Negro community has, uh, Negro um, dwellings have been formed on that slope. And that was also, um, Beacon Hill also had a lot of uh, black people up there because people wanted their servants next to them too. Oh, of course, yeah. But at the time, there wasn't a lot of people over there. So, and um, there's a wonderful um, uh, mentor of mine named Cheryl, uh, Jennifer, Cheryl uh, LaRoche. And she, um, she writes, uh, she, she's kind of like a, she mixes geography and, and black history. And she said, I can go to any city in America and see what side of the tracks, where, where black folks live, basically. And, you know, if it was good to have, if there's a good water table and access to fresh water um, up on the hill, then we would be in the valley. In the yeah. If it was good to be <laughs> low, we would be up on the hill. And so... You can see in those two early formations of, of black um, community that these were things that were imposed on us. This wasn't, there was no citizenship push made for us. And that lesson is for everyone who would become a citizen, mm. right? A lot of people come to, you know, the, 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 the period from the, after the American Revolution at 1790s, 1780, uh, 80s, 90s to 1800. You go from 1800 up to the Civil War in 1861. You have the famine ships from Ireland in the 1830s and the 40s. Famine, yeah. Right. So that's a big Irish push. By the 1900s, you have Eastern Europeans, Italians, Polish Jews, and all of that. They're coming in. And their big thing, they're kind of looking at all this African American history and all of that. All these things that Mexicans are going through. Um, going over walls and, and hiding out in places and doing all of this stuff, black folks have already been down that path. Mm. Everything in American history, anyone's history, has everything to do with that black floor. Mm. That black floor drives everything. So my work is to lift that up, whether it's um, you know doing the genealogy classes or doing these history tours. Uh, we go down over to Beacon Hill, then we go into the South End. And we come all the way up here, uptown to, to Dale Street and this section too. So it's trying to tie all of that, those threads within a two-hour <laughs> van ride, um, and and you know keep all the stories straight. But the, yeah, that's the big piece of what we're trying to. Lift no, I had done here. years ago. I had done. Um, I I was contracted to work with um, some black students at Somerville High. Hmm. They gotten some funding. There were three elders, women. Now in Somerville, they got a grant, and they were looking for someone who could teach um, camera, teach television production to some young teenagers at Somerville High and do a story on the early black families in Somerville. Oh. And, you know, as you know, it can get real dirty and dusty because you're digging in, you know, old books and you're digging in basements and you're digging in, right, doing the gene genealogy. And then, I mean, literally your hands are like dark and they're black and everything and you've got... And so, what amazed me was that two of, the, two of the women, one of the women died right before they'd hired me. 
And then another woman died um, the, night, the night that we were going to air the, the documentary. Wow. It was deep. And so we did this documentary, but <laughs> these people came to me and said, here's the early black families. I said, how do you know? They had a list because they based it on what the elders had told them. I said, but how do they know? And so I'm teaching them how to do the research and how to dig it up. So we're going in the libraries. I knew more about Somerville than the people that grew up there at that point <laughs> and got some kind of citation from the mayor and we did a whole big hoop-de-doo, right? But the, the thing that fascinated me was how many northern industries were tied to southern industries and how the railroad was so instrumental in bringing um, cotton up into the north yes. and through Cambridge and Somerville yeah. and that whole immigrant story is so tied into the economy of the United States and black people in slavery. Yep. And so people in the North think, oh, that was down here. We didn't have anything to do with that. Not yep. understanding that a lot of the wealth. All of it. All well, of it. that's all of it. All of it. So th there's a section on the tour where I talk to people about um, when you're on uh, Beacon Street going up the hill right past the Capitol and there's all these nice big, um, you know, fancy houses facing the Boston Common, where the Frog Pond is and all of that. So all of those houses represent um, Brahmin, blue blood white folks from the factory systems, okay? Hmm. So come 1800, um, 1804, the Haitian Revolution is finished. They flipped the world over. They were kind of the end of a big wave of black revolutions in Guyana, Jamaica, black folks agency were folks were making it not safe to take Africans out of Africa or to be on a plantation, everywhere rising up. This made Britain, this made the, uh, the king and the parliament say, we got to flip this system around. And so instead of holding down all these people, these, Afri these unruly Africans on plantations, what we're going to do is try to um, start to use factories. So the Merrimack River, the, um, the, the Charles River, all of these rivers up here in the north, the Concord River, right out here, all these rivers in the north, they took on these factory systems and the, the 1820s, 1830s, you go to Lowell, Waltham, mm -hmm. Worcester, all, all the of these little mill towns, all of those popped up because the British and the northern United States after the American Revolution, they were starting to say, okay, we can get a lot of this loot system to happen through water power. Turn these big wheels in these factories and we can take these uh, immigrant girls whose little fingers can fit inside these looms oh. and stuff and, and we can actually create dorms for them and we can start a check-in and check-out system. So if you go to a job now and you got to tell them what time you come in and what time you go out. It came from that. It came right from those Ugh. factory systems. Jeez. So. They still have And there was the, no union or anything, so they were working them literally to death. Oh, yeah, but they were paying them. So That's it was, true. So it was a level, it was one cent a minute a day. They were still getting paid. It, it, but they were still making major loot in, this, in the entire system. So, um, you know, you hear about Napoleon blowing the nose off of the Africans when he took his people over to, to Egypt and all of that. Uh, basically... His soldiers are wearing factory, uh, New England factory wool, right? Really? Yeah. They're making major loot. So all those big houses you see on Beacon Hill, that's old white money from the first factory uh, generations. 
Now, where did they get enough money to throw the bricks up, create the steel and the machines to put into the, the factories, connect them to the river power, get them turning around, and then get the employees just a little bit of money and administer all of that? The granddaddies were merchants, okay? So the New England slavers, the slave ships, and what I tell people is to distinguish between the southern um, connection to slavery and the northern one. The southern was slave-based society. Mm -hmm. And there's only been five real slave-based societies in the entire world. That's in Rome, Greece, and Brazil, the Caribbean, and the southern U.S., hmm. where the entire society is based on the economy of slave production. Mm. Right? Sugar, indigo, tobacco, rice, uh, much, much later, cotton, the mm. king cotton, king and queen cotton. So all of that stuff was a lot, um, much, much later um, than the original ones, the sugar and the tobacco and the rice specifically. And rum, too, rum from that. Well, yeah, you, you, the, the sugar got turned into the, the molasses and the rum, and that's when they'd go back and bring it over to Africa and set you against me and say, you know, I want you to go and burn down Sharon's village and on three sides, and when her people run out the front side, knock them on the head and bring them to my ship. Mm. Okay, so I'm working on a manuscript about um, <laughs> Afro-Boston versus the violent three, and, and it's three myths, basically, and one of the core myths is that you enslaved your own people. Right? No, that's, that wasn't that's, the case. That's the main message we're taught from the very beginning, is that you enslaved your own people, and they don't actually unpack how the wars were started and how rum was used, how trinkets and, and even fabrics. You know, here, buy these, these fabrics, build up appetites, set these Africans against each other in a way that they had never been before. I'm not saying there weren't wars, there wasn't conflict, but there was never this type of um, mass Incentive. Uh, yeah, mass raid and, and devastation. Uh, the Ma'afa, which Ma Marimba Ani, Mama Marimba Ani calls the Ma'afa, the great disaster. Um, but the, the, the big thing about that, that um, progression from the slave-based society in the South, this was a slavery-based society in the North. Wait, wait, wait go back, because I'm on, you get tell me one, now give me two and three, two. Okay. Slavery base means that the ships, the rum caskets, the timber, okay, the codfish. It was so um, lucrative and profitable for um, plantations in Jamaica, Cuba, Haiti, Puerto Rico, and all of that. They didn't want to clear any land to raise cows to feed Africans working with a five-year mortality um, on those, those plantations. So they would import codfish. So if you go down to from the New England? From New England. So if you go to the Capitol building. There's th a codfish up there. There's a golden cod up there. And I tell people on the tour, I said, that's our Confederate flag right there. Mm. You got the Marblehead uh, and where all these slave ships were built in Salem and all of that. And they got golden codfishes on their doorbells like it's some kind of thing. And, and the, the Interesting thing is, is places like the Isaac Royal House and slave quarters in Medford, the Shirley Eustace House, they're among the leaders trying to unpack that there was black life here. Not only was there black life, but the anti-black life of the white people who run these mansions and who are called merchants in history and northern New England uh, 
folktale. Um, this is all tied to the building of the United States, is, is this um, entire slaving system. So that was right. one myth. What's the two and three? <laughs> so, so you know I'm not gonna let that go. Right? You're, yeah, you're unpacking my manuscript right here. I, Just give me two, as, and no, we'll so, have to buy the book so for the rest. The, the, the three, the three myths is, is Afro Boston versus the Violent Three. What teaching Black history in Boston has taught? Uh, I don't say Black Boston. I actually say David Walker City. Okay. Because me and the homies are coming up with the. We're trying to differentiate between Boston and David Walker City, mm -hmm. um, which is our city. But, um, you know, the, the, the kids in Philadelphia, they say they got Tubman City. Okay. It's a differ, differentiate between, or Baltimore, I think they call it Douglas, Frederick Douglass City, too. But um, youth are always so creative and wonderful. But the first myth is, um, the, the first myth is, uh, slavery is slavery is slavery. That's not true. No, it's not. That's why it's a myth. Because the, 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 the floor of black sufferment always has to be analogized to other people's sufferments. So the minute that you raise anything about um, chattel enslavement, this process, it's gotta be analogized whether it's been slavery forever. And that's one big thing that needs to be cut. And that's taught in schools all the time. It's, it's a fundamental thing. That's right. right? The second thing is, um, you enslaved yourselves. Okay, so that's the second piece. That's the natural shift, actually, from the first one. And then the third one is the idea of a good white. Oh, Lord. The good On that white one, abolitionist. We got to take a, a break. <laughs> and we're going to take a break. Um, wow. I, I told you, I could listen to him all the time. I learned something <laughs> all the time. Hopefully, you're learning something, too, and it is bringing your knowledge to another level on another level. Stay with us. We have some more information and we'll be right back. How do we define black history? Is it a plethora of stories about slavery confined to a single 28-day or 29-day month? Is it a watered-down, two-hour version of what the black experience is really like? Or does it look like your tired peers in your ninth grade social studies class complaining to you about how exhausting it is to be learning about Dr. King for the 10th time since second grade? In light of our current socio-political climate, the need for non-conventional black stories to be integrated into American history and English curricula is at its highest because they convey to students the adversity African-Americans face on a day-to-day -day basis and how several of them have learned to create and innovate in spite of this. Now, I was raised in an environment where several people I was close to didn't look like me. My mother is a Pacific Islander, my father is black, and for all my life, we've lived in an area populated by a small minority of black family, friends, and overall students. In school, we were taught lessons about several European inventors and innovators like Leonardo da Vinci, Charles Darwin, Albert Einstein, Susan B. Anthony, Christopher Columbus, Abraham Lincoln, the list goes on. But I can never necessarily fit myself into the mold of these narratives solely because they were presented through a lens that I could not personally identify with. And they didn't feature individuals whose stories even vaguely resembled my own. Now, granted, we would learn about Dr. King and Rosa Parks when February rolled around out of the school's own obligation, but it gave me the impression that all people of color have been doing for these past few centuries is fight for their basic human rights 
and do nothing else but protest the white patriarchy, and that the world only held one man and one woman responsible for paving the way for the civil rights movement. I wasn't exposed to the idea that people of, the, of color in this country could be artists, inventors, or politicians until I researched this realm of learning in my free time. I had no idea what black history looked like until I became aware of the struggle in which several black artists and innovators' voices go unheard or masked, the struggle in which European history can often be learned within a core curriculum, but black history can only be learned through an elective, the struggle in which our textbooks turn a blind eye to the way people of color have revolutionized the way we live our day-to-day -day lives. Take Shirley Chisholm, for example. In 1968, she became the first African-American woman to enter, enter Congress and eventually seek a presidential nomination in the United States, despite housing an, under, an underfunded campaign and being restricted from participating in any televised primary debates on a discriminatory basis. Chisel managed to enter 12 primaries and accumulate 152 delegate votes during her run due to support from African-Americans, women, and other allies from across the nation. Her story is solely representative of one's resilience as a person of color in America and as a woman in America. Then we have Louis Latimer, a brilliant inventor and engineer. In 1881, he collaborated with Hiram Maxim and Thomas Edison in order to invent the light bulb. Latimer himself created the carbon filament, which is a crucial component of the light bulb. And although it may seem insignificant, his contribution to this invention paved the way for one of the most groundbreaking devices in history, which is why our history textbook should continually recognize him for the vital role he played. Finally, there is Jacob Lawrence, a highly renowned artist due to, due to his paintings, which depict the, the several everyday narratives of African-Americans and historical figures. After developing an art style which showcased the overall vibrancy and diversity of black neighborhoods, Lawrence went on to become the first African-American represented by a New York gallery in 1941. During a period of widespread hatred and bigotry within our country, this man was able to display the extent of his creativity to the world, despite being considered far from capable of doing so. If we as a society are hesitant to create a push for more diversity in our English and history curricula, it creates a potential divide in what certain students feel they can and cannot be, and it limits what they feel is possible to achieve as individuals all because of the fact that several educators failed to shed light on the many contributions made by African-Americans throughout history. And although it may seem, it's, and although nearly impossible to integrate the teaching of black history in all schools nationwide, several educators and teachers have begun to implement it into their own individual curricula as a first step, to name a few. We have Jamila Pitts, a former English teacher from Harlem, Manhattan, who utilized the Harlem Renaissance in order to open up her students to a wide variety of African-American narratives and how they have taken strides to, and how they have taken strides to showcase black creativity from the 20s to the mid-30s. Mike Cackley, a former social studies and English teacher who chose not only to give a brief lesson on the civil rights movement during Black History Month, but integrated lessons about African-Americans in the context of war and foreign policy discussed in his class. And Mrs. Zane Stearman, an English and avid teacher here at Mission Vista who strives to incorporate black literature by figures such as Langston Hughes and Martin Luther King Jr. in order to demonstrate their creative brilliance to her students. Hearing black stories not only sparks inspiration in the minds of young black students, but it imbues a sense of pride in them allowing them to come home and tell their parents, hey, they look like me, 
when referring to brilliant engineers, writers, doctors, lawyers, etc., who've essentially paved a way for the youth of this generation to live in prosperity and work toward an overall state of solidarity in American culture. Because black history is American history. This country we live in, the soil we walk on, and even several devices we use day to day originated from the minds of several black innovators. In the near future, I want young black boys and girls to be able to sit in their history classes and take part in a curriculum that features the stories of people like Shirley Chisholm and Louis Latimer. The youth of this generation should have the ability to skim through their English and history textbooks to reveal several people who they feel they can empathize with, people they can strive to become. And with this newfound knowledge of the great minds that came before, students of color throughout the country can reach their full potential and work toward creating a better future for our nation. In turn, this can certainly benefit the worldview of other people of color as well as non-people of color in America, because our country is a monumental blend of identities, even extending outside of the boundaries of a single race. Incorporating black stories simply opens up discussion regarding the people of color as a whole, provoking questions among educators such as, what can I do to contribute to breaking racial stereotypes? Or how can I convey to students that success does not align with a single ethnic origin? By incorporating these ideas within a classroom setting, our schools would be taking a step toward overall acceptance and solidarity by showing students that historical triumphs can be made by individuals of any origin. Thank you. Kalani Dawkins, I mean, young people, we got to carry it on. Uh, Nipsey Hussle said, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Unfortunately, <clears throat> his race was cut short by another black man. And that happens all too often. So this is a call for people to stop the violence, to stop the nonsense. We're killing soldiers in our own army. Over what? That's my little two second PSA. But now we're going to go back because we learned of three myths that are three myths in history about our people, about black people. And my guest, I'm telling you, it's never enough time with him. I could sit here. I've sat here with you like hours on weekend workshops, and I still feel like it was enough time. And I still wanted to talk to you. So now that we don't have a pandemic anymore, I'm going to have to get you back in here, especially since I started... Um, new podcast now, Black Teachers Matter. Mm. And you are definitely a teacher and that's gonna focus just on education, so I got you. Um, you talked about the myths, you know, that we enslaved ourselves and that, that that was the only kind of slave, that there's other kinds of slavery. It wasn't just this slavery happened, it was to happen in other, you know, and so, and I've heard that in classrooms that I was a teacher in where a white teacher would come in and tell some black and brown, you know, oh, well, no. all societies, there's always been slavery. No. There's never been slavery like what happened to us. No. And, never. And it's, it's the, I put the, the descriptor in front of the word myths of violent. That's an extremely violent thing that's occurring because it's, in, it's usually in the context of some kind of current thing, some genealogical trauma, mm. like a teacher says something wrong in the classroom, and then they say, um, they explain, but yeah, you all been doing this for, in slavery. Said slavery, uh, everybody has slavery. So you, what that's doing, that rupture that's a, happening, is not only, um, well, you know, I'm still 
investigating. I've been writing this book for 10 years, but mm. <laughs> the, the, the actual violence, it's like, it's like the girl like me doll, mm. right? Um, there's a video from 20 years ago now that a young sister did in the New York public schools where she recreated the 1954 um, the black doll, the black and, the doll, doll. and the white doll. And, and uh, with the black kids, which one do you like better? Which yes. one is a dirty one? Which yeah. one is a bad one? The, the, the girl tests the young children and retests them um, with that famous case that the husband couple, I forget their names, but they, um, they she asks them, they have the white doll and the black doll in front of the, the black child and says, what's the good doll? They push forward the white doll. What's the bad doll? And they push forward the, the black doll. And then, um, which doll is most like you? And you can see the rupture. There's one girl in particular in that video. Um, she, she's recreating. And they've done it in Mexico. They've done it in a whole bunch of places with melanated people and, not, and European people. And, and the results are all the same. But um, you can see this girl... She's just identified that this is the good doll. You mm. can see her eyes go there and her body goes there. Her mm. whole spirit's going there. I'm a child of God. I'm good. And something in her violent is occurring. And that's actually nigger. Mm. That is, she's taking on that she's got this defect mm -hmm. on her. Whether she learned it from her parents who were trained on that or something in school or what she sees on the, the, television, the yeah. television or the social media and all of that. And she well, food concedes, boxes too. You can see it everywhere. Everywhere. She concedes in that violent moment and she pushes forward the black doll. Mm. And when I showed that in prison. I showed that in South Bay prison. I showed that in elementary schools. I showed the video in um, colleges, many different places. And everyone always has a visceral response to that, to mm. what is happening to that child because they understand it, even if they can't articulate it that she's accepting somehow she is conceding that label on her mm. of defect. As the greatest defect that's ever happened in the history of human beings, right? And once she does that and takes that position, whether it's a, mm. a girl or a boy, when they take that position onto themselves, how much uh, that's a suicide, right? That's a self-killing. That's a self-annihilating um, violence. Mm. How far is it for her to look around and grow up and be in a neighborhood where like, oh, my parents told me don't fuss with those people over in that project and you don't know why, but you've been hating them for a long time. You take their life over nothing. Mm. Um, and you can see it at the nation level. Mm -hmm. You know, um, in Africa you have, they can trigger us in any moment, but trigger that thing and say it's the North versus the South, it's the Muslim versus the Christian, it's the the whatever tribe versus the whatever tribe. And that's a long game that's been enacted. Mm. And so um, taking on all of that weight is something that no other people and no other type of slavery had to do. Well, the other thing is that the other slavery is you could marry out of and you could buy out of. Whole different They systems. owned your labor. Yeah. They didn't own you. And they didn't own, they didn't own generations. Like they owned you and yep. your labor. Heritability. And, and, and it was like, yeah. you're never going to get out of yeah. this. This is the way it is. This is the way it always be. And then they put a white Jesus on top of that. Yeah. It's because God is on our side. So you got forces, supernatural forces against you being yeah. free. And, and so in that moment when that teacher is saying, oh, but, you know, your history is just like everybody else's history. 
in the moment of rupturing you from your moment of, because that, that raising it up by any aged child in any kind of movement to talk mm -hmm. about our history, that is a forward-looking thing. Mm -hmm. We inherently know in our beloved, beautiful struggle that um, there is no future without our past. Even if we can't articulate, if we don't know who our parents or our grandparents are, or we don't know our family trees and, and so forth articulate in an in a articulate way, um, able to express it. Um, and this is why so many people come out damaged. Um, I have a lot of friends who, I grew up in the burbs, and I, it was tremendous damage that, that I came through. But I have a lot of friends who you know, grew up in Boston but went to Metco. And so there is a level of um, taking on something that's not right. You mm. know something's not right. Mm. And so um, coming to that and then just trying to, you know, hustle and make your money and pay back your school debts and all of this kind of stuff, um, it gets you put into a position. And so, you know, there's a lot of 40, 50-year-old folks who not only are traumatized from the busing situation here in the city, mm -hmm. but also from, um, you know, all across the country of dealing with, um, you know, mainstream school systems that have utterly violated their, their, their sense of self. My father was um, one of the architects of Operation Exodus, which became Metco. Mm -hmm. And he philosophically differed with Ruth Batson and Ellen Jackson, he said, this is only supposed to be a temporary solution mm. while we build our own schools mm. because this power structure, white supremacy, is never gonna give us what we need mm. to be able to be full human beings. My father forbid us to pledge allegiance to the flag. Mm. And you know that was during the 50s where they could corporal punishment, rat tan you and try to beat you in the basement and stuff like that. And, mm. and, or, or they assume you're a communist or something like that. So we always put our heads down when everybody else, I mean, that was a part of the ritual in the morning, mm. right? Place leading to the flag. Mm. So we didn't do that. And when my teacher said, um, what are you, what are you communist? You're, you're pinko or something like that. My father told me not to pledge allegiance to a country that treats me like a second class citizen. I'm like, boom. I mean, we had that. And so. Was he a ropes? Uh, I don't know if there's a word for it, but a ropes and I ropes and for so many of his probably his generation, you know. My grandfather, great-grandfather, was Garviate. So Garvey, they came up okay. through that way, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. On, on my father's Clear. side, he came up through Clear. that way. And all, but all my grandparents were Southerners, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina. Yeah. But my mother's side was totally different because, you know, went from blue-black to white, almost white. And a couple of my uncles tried to pass as white and did that for a while. So that was that whole dynamic on that side. And I'm coming up in the middle of that child of the 50s with this radical father going to the nation of Islam. Yeah. And, and, and my father coming home and saying, take that white boy. Because, you know, back then they had, um, was it John F. Kennedy, Jesus, and Martin Luther King yeah, and stuff up there, right? Pictures. And he was like, take that white boy off the wall. He was like, you know, and she loved my dad, so that's what she did. But yeah. um, it was just interesting coming up in that and the backlash from even black people because when my father came out of prison, his first job was working in the barbershop at Bonobie and Brummel. So I had an afro, I came back in the summertime, I had an afro like Angela Davis coming back to Beaver Country Day School. And they were like, and I was already talking to talk, but then I'm coming in and, um, 50 years later, at our, our reunion, our high school reunion, the prep school, <laughs> um, 
these former classmates were like, were we friends back then? I don't remember, but I remember I was afraid of you. <laughs> and I was like, I was 13, you know I mean? I was a kid like you and you were afraid of me? Yeah. Like, does that make any sense to you? Yeah. I was a kid just like you, but then there was yeah. something, and I graduated in dashiki, everybody else had caps and gowns, but I had a really radical class, like they had women now and lightning bolts and stuff like that, but I graduated in the dashiki and the headmaster, my aunt had African clothes, my mother didn't, she had a suit. And the headmaster looked at my aunt and says, is that the way she's gonna you know, walk the stage? And my mother said, excuse me, that's my daughter. And she's been different every day that she's been here. What makes you think she's gonna be, she's gonna conform you know, here? <laughs> and so you know, even my daughter, when I pass it down to my daughter, she said to me, mommy, why am I so different? Mm. Because you know, as a child, you're not trying to take that heat from mm. being so different. Mm. And I remember being in, my, my teacher looked like Richard Nixon. My U.S. history teacher looked like Richard Nixon, but when I looked at the history books, it was a paragraph um, that said, Negroes were slaves in this country. We had wide noses and nappy hair and dark skin. I was incensed. I mean, I was furious, mm. but we had to do a, a class project. So I did a history class, and I did a history class and had people enact those characters and really brought you know, Native American history. I mean, one of my history teachers, oh God, she had that black and white movie, Broken Arrow, as a history lesson. And I'm sitting and I'm fuming, you know, and I'm just sitting there. And so she's like, well, Sharon, you know, uh, can you give us feedback? And I'm the only black kid, because that's what happens. You're in there, there were like five black, black kids in all wealthy, all white, all female school. And I'm saying, you don't want to know what I know. No, no, we just love your comments. They're so colorful, you know. So I'm sitting there and I'm just feeling like I knew, I mean, you isolated me already. And then I said, you really want to hear what I think? I think they should have shot that white boy in sight, right? As it would have been a shorter movie. And they're like, oh, because I'm part, you know, Blackfoot and, and, and Cherokee. So I said, look, the movie would have been shorter. But he came across, he fell in love with her. She was already betrothed to the greatest warrior. He stays overnight trying to get with her. The town thinks they kidnapped. They come in, they burn the town, kill him, kill his, they should have shot him on sight. I mean, that's my viewpoint, but that was something my father kept um, instilling in us because when we were little, he came home one time and we were on the back of the couch acting like, you know, cowboys and Indians, the whole thing, and we were rooting for the cowboys with the white hats. Yep. And my father, yep. like every, at every single step of the way, he was like, no, 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 you're rooting against yourself. This is who you are. <laughs> because he understood how insidious that is. Yeah. And so when I try to do it now with my students, you're still coming up against a system that is brainwashing our kids, but it's also, also dumbing down and eliminating critical thinking. Yeah. And so that, that media, we've got like four minutes, that social media that is, that is programming and, and dumbing down our kids. Um, and I was telling somebody yesterday, I've never really seen, um, I remember coming up and it was the schools and it was the college campuses where you got people thinking about it. And that's not what's happening now. They're just trying to get through it and pay student loans. So in yeah. about two minutes, what can we do to unplug from the matrix and decolonize, <laughs> decolonize well, ourselves? I want, you're making me think of a couple of things. Your father was a balance for, in your personal experience. And we need more of that. We need more, um, I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning. You're talking about the accident of you being black. Mm. Sometimes we say, they gave my child a bad score because he's black. When we get to the grammar level where we can say, 
my child got that score, the racism occurred because of something that happened in that person's mind. Mm. The accident is not here. Right. The, the beginning is here. The thing that, the violence that came was another process, you know? And lifting that up um, in our young people, giving them more um, expression, and you see, you created. You created an answer in that moment, put in the spotlight and all of that. They're waiting for us, that balance, that load to come back. It's rough, bro. And so our, but our creativity is going to be there. Our creative thinking and process and solution making and our spirit is going to be there. We got two minutes. Tell people how they get in touch with you. Okay. Um, so the company is called Reidrin Business Group. Um, so R-E-I-D-R-E-N. You can do joel at reidrin.com. Reidrin.com's got all my contact information. Book a tour, join a class, um, holler at me for any, any kind of uh, information that I can help with. Um, and this is going on through the wintertime? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to focus a lot on, um, you know, the spring sales, uh, you know, Black History Month and all of that. Increase my poster line. We have educational posters. We're doing a, a bunch of... Um, uh, Ancobia, which is black leaders, uh, so instead of heroes and sheroes, I use a twi, a con word that means those who lead the battle in commitment and courage. So it's a series of um, uh, people, Stephen Biko, Elma Lewis, a whole bunch of different posters. I've got that your posters. Doing. Yeah. I need to get some more. <laughs> yeah, we're going to build those over the winter. And well. we, have to, we have to have you on some more again. Hopefully you have been taking notes or not. This show gets replayed. Um, I hope you understand that when you watch this show, you need to have some way to take some notes because and take it another step further because we're planting seeds and raising your consciousness, hopefully, to another level, which is why this show is called On Another Level. I want to thank my guest, oh my God, Joel McCall, blessings. And I want to thank you for being here. God bless you. Take care of yourselves and each other. Till next time. Biggest, biggest in the United States Congress. He had the audacity to send out a Dr. King quote. The march has begun every day. We rise like the sun. We fight till the battle is won. Can you hear the footsteps? Listen, cause we're coming like a gang on the street. So you better start running. It's time for some action now. Historical progression. Generations march in succession through 400 years. Hate, blood, sweat, and tears. And counting. The resistance is mounting. Generation of fighters, when it gets hard, we charge. Don't just stand this, pump your fist, throw your hands in the air just like this. We are the fighters, another generation of fighters. We don't